listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Open your Bibles to the book of Jude. And if you need a little help with that, it's not a enormous book, but you can go to the very end, find the maps, turn left, and you'll be there in no time, all right? The book of Jude. We have been all this spring semester studying through the book of First Peter, but now we want to take a little bit of a, of a change. We want to course change a little bit and really get specific and focused and try to get right down into the, the warp and the woof of our lives. One of the things that we do at Bethel is that we go to God's Word and we mine passages. We drill deep. We dig fiercely. We want to understand. We want to produce these little gems, these biblical principles. This is what we study God's Word for. We want to find out what is God saying? What are those truths that are true for all people at all time in all places? That's what we're looking for God's word to reveal to us, those gemstones, those precious treasures of what are those things that are true for all people at all times in all places. And when we find those things, we apply them to all areas of our life. And so my hope this morning is that we're going to study some of the book of Jude. We're going to extract some biblical principles, and then we're going to apply those very specifically. So, the book of Jude, I'm not going to read the entire letter. I'm going to read verses 17 through 23. The book of Jude, 17 to 23. Jude says this, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. This is God's word. Hopefully, if you've been around Bethel long enough at all, you've heard a lot about this notion, this concept of grace. And if you think you've heard too much about grace, then we're just now starting to do it right. We want to saturate everything we do in grace. Last week, Mark kicked off a discussion about the answer in our homes is grace, not law. And so this morning, that's sort of my big idea. This is my walking around portable principle that I hope all of us leave here with. It's this, give grace, not law. We would default to that mindset. The point of preaching, the point of any passage of Scripture is proper perspective. That We would see the world through God's eyes. We would see the world through God's eyes, not our own. That we would think God's thoughts after Him. That we would think Theologically, in every context, every environment, every circumstance that we encounter, that we would think theologically, we would have proper perspective. This is what God's Word gives us. So, Lord willing, we're going to extract some principles from this little epistle in Jude. Now, Jude, at the very beginning of the letter, identifies himself simply as the brother of James. 
which is not exactly how I would do it. Jude is the half-brother of Jesus. Now, I just got to tell you, if I'm the half-brother of Jesus, I'm probably introducing myself as, yo, yo, I'm the bro of the Most High. That's how I'm getting in the club or wherever else I want to be. Jesus is my brother. Jude does not presume to do that. He simply introduces himself as the brother of James, who at that time was the bishop, the, the head of the church in Jerusalem. I'm just the half-brother. I am a servant of Jesus. Do you think that way about your brother? Some of you might know my brother. I don't think that way about him. But Jude had a right understanding of who this Jesus was. Now, Jude is writing to combat sort of the, the thinking of the day. He's writing to give them proper perspective. There was this thinking that was beginning to take shape in the ancient world called Gnosticism. Gnosticism basically works like this. It's the philosophy, it's the thinking that everything spiritual is good, everything physical, everything material is bad. That might sound like exactly how you feel. Like, well, spirit is good, material is bad, and that's, but here's how it works out. If that's true, that spiritual is good and things that are physical are bad, then it doesn't really matter what I do with my body. It doesn't matter, it's just going to burn anyway. The real me is on the inside. And I get to decide who or what I am. Now, if you have been watching at all, our world and our media, things that are going on, this is at the center of so many issues that are on our news reports on a day-to-day -day basis. Nobody's going to tell me who or what I am. I get to decide who or what I am. That's Gnosticism, where there is secret knowledge. You have to go and try to figure it out, and there are those who hold these secret truths. You have to figure it out from them, and then they're going to give you all kinds of secrets and clues, and it institutes this whole system of control. Very dangerous. But Jude is writing to talk about the apostates, those who are beginning to bring error into the church. It was true for the church in Jude's day. It's true for us even more today. Jude is writing to say, listen, there are some very dangerous things going on that are seeping their way into the church. And here's what I want you to do, church. I want you to fight. I want you to fight. It's the theme of the book of Jude. Fight, contend. Jude is the book for dudes. Fight, contend. Don't be passive. Don't be namby-pamby. That's Greek. Don't be, a, don't be a sissy. Fight, contend for the faith. So he's going to lay out in verses 4 through 16 all of the ingredients of what error and false teaching is, all of the things that are beginning to seep into the church. And you can read verses 4 through 16 and you go, hey, wait a minute. That sounds a whole lot like America in the 21st century. Uh-huh, exactly. But then he's going to conclude his letter, verses 17 to 23, the portion we just led with how we're supposed to respond to this stuff when it comes in. So if you're the kind of person that makes notes in your Bible or on your bulletin or on your smartphone or tablet, here's what I would love for you to do. In verses 17 and 18, I would encourage you to write the words, set expectations. Set expectations. Let me read verses 17 and 18 again. It says, but you must remember, beloved. He calls them beloved. I got pay toy. Dear friends, those for whom I have a deep and abiding, well-reasoned concern. That's what that word means. Remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. 
He urges his readers to remember, this is exactly what they should expect. Don't be surprised when this stuff begins to infiltrate our church. It's the same thing that Peter said in 2 Peter 2 and 3. It's the same thing that Paul said, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. The stuff that they said was going to happen, it's happening. Don't be surprised. Set your expectations accordingly. All the stuff that they said might come to pass, will come to pass, it's happening. This is why we think Jude was probably written in the AD 70s after Peter had written both of his epistles, probably got a lot of his information from Peter. He says, in those days, there will be people in the church who are called scoffers. Your Bible might say mockers. Now, these are not people who say nanny, nanny, boo-boo. It's not that kind of mocking. No, no. This is a technical term. It's empakti. These empakti are people that are very ferocious. This is the, the, the definition of a scoffer. It is those who despise morality and religion, who are arrogant and godless libertines. Maybe that sounds like some people that you hear on TV or radio. Those who despise morality and religion, who are arrogant and godless libertines. And what is it that those people are calling for? What they're calling for, and Jude's going to paraphrase Paul and Peter, they're calling for people to simply follow their feelings, their passions. Just, just follow your heart. It sounds so good. Just follow your heart except for the fact that the Bible says your heart is a disease pit. It is deceitful above all things, Jeremiah 17 says. Who can understand it? But that characterizes the error that tries to seep into the church in Jude's day and in our day. Feelings hold sway. Feelings carry the day. And if you've noticed, it's very difficult to argue with someone's feelings. You can be having a discussion, maybe even an argument or a disagreement, but as soon as someone says, well, I feel like... Well, that's it. Conversation's over because you can't contest someone's feelings, right? If I feel that way, it must be true. And what's true for me is true for me. And what's true for you is true for you. Unless, of course, I say that what you think is not true, then I must be right and you must be right. The whole thing breaks down. But what characterizes error coming into the church is people relying on their feelings. Now, this is super important for us because we just sang a bunch of songs together. And some of you may not have felt like it. God is unconcerned whether you feel like it or not. Some things are true and some things are worth it, whether you and I feel like it or not. So be careful. When you drive away this afternoon, you think, well, I didn't really feel it on that one. I did feel it there. I didn't feel it. God is unconcerned with your feelings. In fact, when passions and ethos begin to sort of make up the decision-making processes of the church, we're in deep trouble, Jude says. We don't want to be characterized by feelings. Jude says that this stuff is going to happen in the last times. We are living in the last times. Since the institution of the church, we are in the last age before the final age. And Jude said, this is what we are to be expecting. Set your expectations accordingly. It's going to come into the church. Prepare and prepare accurately. Now, verse 19, write the word divisions. It is these who cause divisions worldly people devoid of the Spirit. When that sort of stuff begins to make its way into the church, it always causes schisms and isms, separations, factions, and cliques. And Jude says, when that begins to happen, watch out. That is not of the Lord. The Lord has no interest whatsoever in the church playing Red Rover. None. 
The same Spirit teaches all. The Spirit of God is never going to say to this section, hey, you should feel this way. To this section, you should feel a different way. Never going to happen. But that's what begins to happen in the church, and we have to guard for that. And Jude says the people that sow those divisions and those factions are devoid of the Spirit. What is he saying there? They are not believers. This is a serious indictment. But Jude knows what Paul knew, that the, the acid test of a Christian is not someone that can win Bible Jeopardy five days in a row. That's not it. Who can name all 12 disciples and the minor prophets. That's not the test of a Christian. That they wear the right jeans on the fourth Sunday and they skip the third verse of the third hymn. That's not the mark of a Christian. No, no, no. The mark of a Christian is, are they indwelled by the Spirit of God? How do you know? This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. That's how you know if someone's a Christian. Are they indwelled by the Spirit of the living God? Are they an eternal being, indwelled, permanently sealed by the third member of the Godhead Trinity? Now, sometimes that's hard to discern. This is why I'm so grateful for a plurality of leaders like Bethel has. We have elders, we have deacons, we have other staff and volunteer leaders. There's not one individual who holds any authority whatsoever. Always a plurality to say, wait a minute, this is not right. We are allowing error and passions to creep in and to begin to corrupt what we know to be true. So thankful for that. Verses 20 and 21, you might want to write down this word, prevention. Prevention's always better than cure. Prevention, verses 20 and 21. But you, beloved, this is the second time he calls them beloved. As in, this is the most important thing I can say to you. I care about you so much, little church, Judas saying. You're my favorites. I have pictures of all of you on my refrigerator. I love you, and I love you so much. This is the thing I want to get across. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. This is prevention. Now look, I need to get a little bit geeky and I need to get a little bit greeky, but it matters. There's really only one imperative, one command in these two verses. There's just one instruction. Now, as we always say, the imperative is always based on the indicative. Let me explain that. Anytime you see a command in Scripture, do this, it is always based on that which God has already done. That's so hugely important. Anytime there's an imperative, an instruction, it's based on that which God has already done. In this case, it's no different. Now, Jude's essentially going to give one instruction with three modifiers. It should probably read like this. You, beloved, my favorite, my besties, my cherished cherished church, but you keep yourselves in the love of God by building yourselves up in faith, by praying in the spirit, by eagerly expecting Jesus. In other words, here's the instruction. Here's how you prevent error. You keep yourselves in the love of God. Well, how do we do that? By building yourselves up in faith, by praying in the spirit, by eagerly expecting the return of Jesus. That's how you keep yourself in the love of God. That's how you prevent error from seeping into the church. Are you tracking with me? Building yourselves up in faith. What does that mean? It's the idea of telling yourself what you already know to be true. Taking the heritage of God's truth that you've heard from leaders, parents, grandparents, and reminding yourselves of what you know to be truth. And truth trumps feelings. That's how you build yourselves up in faith. 
by praying in the Holy Spirit. The, the apostates, those who were sowing error, were coming into the church, but they were devoid of the Spirit. Jude wants them to remember that you are indwelled, sealed permanently by the Spirit. You are to be characterized by conversation and communication with the Holy Spirit, which begs the question, how often do you hear His voice? How often does He hear yours? How much time do we spend saying, God, speak, your servant is listening? I don't have a laundry list of things for you to get done. No, how about instead, we just pray in the Spirit. We just commune. We have a conversation with God Most High. And the scandal of grace is that we have access. We have availability, accessibility, and invitation to actually commune with the Holy Spirit. By eagerly expecting His return. Did you know that the early church used to greet one another by saying, Maranatha, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Even now, I just saw my wife die in the Colosseum. Come, Lord Jesus. Just saw my children carried off in chains and don't know what's going to happen to them. Come, Lord Jesus. They kept themselves in the love of God by building themselves up in faith, by praying in the Spirit and eagerly expecting the return of Christ. Now remember, this is directed to the beloved. Jude does not say, hey, elders and super saints, here's what you do. Hey, deacons and lay leaders, no, beloved, the church, this is for everybody. This is an imperative and instruction for the entire body of believers. Keep yourselves in the love of God by building yourself up in faith, reminding yourself what is true, praying in the Spirit, and eagerly expecting Jesus. This is proper perspective. When the storms of earth get so dark, but you can always remember, oh, yeah, 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 but, but Jesus is coming. The Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, he's on his way. And it sets the stage. This is what Gene Green said. I love this. All of us have a responsibility to contribute to the corporate building of the faith. He says, community is the soil where faith grows. Happens together. Now, I got to talk about this for a moment. The imperative, the instruction is to keep yourselves. Now, that one little imperative, keep yourselves, sets up the holy, healthy tension of the entire Bible. Keep yourselves. Because Jude 1 starts off by saying this, you're the church, you are kept by God. You're kept, and so keep yourselves. Don't you see the beauty of that? The instruction is for you to diligently, volitionally, intentionally keep yourselves because you're kept. It's the same verb. You are kept by God the Father, for or by Jesus, depending on how you read Jude verse 1. It's really marvelous. Keep yourselves because you have been kept. That's prevention, verses 20 and 21. But what about, what about those who are already beginning to fall and to fade? Right next to verses 22 and 23, cure. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now, Jude has already told them what the dangers are. They're going to be coming into the church. Jude has already said, this is how you prevent them from affecting you, keeping yourselves in the love of God, by building yourselves up in the faith, by praying in the Spirit, by eagerly expecting the return of Jesus. But for those who are already beginning to stumble and fade and fall away. Here's what you do. You show mercy. That's really interesting. Those who are beginning to doubt, 
You don't bludgeon them with coarse correction. No, you stupid. That's never helpful. No one has ever lost an argument and gone to heaven. It does not work that way. What does Jude say? When people begin to fall and to fade, you show them mercy. You don't give them what you think they deserve. Everyone goes through seasons of doubt. We all wonder. I hear people say, well, faith is the opposite of doubt, and doubt's the opposite of faith. Absolutely not. Faith is picking up your doubts and carrying them across anyway. Faith and doubt actually go hand in hand, and we will all go through seasons of doubting. And when we go through seasons of doubt, what if we were actually shown mercy by the people sitting in this room? See, we have to remember that Jude calls them beloved twice. What does that mean? It means look around. The people that are sitting in this room, God loves them as much as he loves his son Jesus. You think about that. The people in this room, sovereign God loves them as much as he loves his son Jesus. So should we not therefore have the same mindset and perspective? Show them mercy. Don't give them what we think they deserve. Romans chapter 2 verse 4 says, it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance, to rethink our thinking, to change our minds. It is his kindness, not harsh threats of consequence. Don't give people what you think they deserve. He says to snatch some from the fire. This is really forceful language. Jude is quoting from Zechariah 3.2 where God tells Satan, oh no, Satan, I have snatched Jerusalem from you. I have rescued them. And Jude says, look, when you see people who are going hard off into that sort of error, Speak the truth in love, but rescue them. Don't stand idly by and say, well, who am I to judge? No, you get involved, you get engaged. This is how the church is supposed to respond, showing mercy while speaking the truth in love. It is hate even the garment that has been stained by the flesh. What does this mean? It means do it with fear and awe and reverence. Never looking at someone else's sin and thinking that you're above it. You're not. Do not peer too long into the error that you're confronting. That has a way of corrupting. Don't dwell in the doubt or the discouragement of another for too long. Do it with fear and reverence and awe. What are we supposed to take away from this little passage as the church from Jude 17 to 23? Well, again, our opportunity is to do what God does and to give grace, not law. Wonderful English theologian John Owen puts it this way. He said, He who carries his sin up Mount Sinai will only have it strengthened, but he who carries his sin to the cross will see it lose its power. What is he saying? If you carry your sin to the law up Mount Sinai where Moses got the law, if you carry your sin and say, Well, here's a checklist of all the things I'm not supposed to do, that'll just make your sin even stronger, make the desire and the temptations even fiercer. But when you take it to the cross, you will see your sin lose its power. So, very quickly, three biblical principles, three timeless truths that are applicable for all people in all times and all places. Here are three. Number one, don't give people what you think they deserve. Show mercy. Don't give people what you think they deserve. When you observe, not if, but when you observe people beginning to drift, show mercy. Over and over and over again, Scripture says that, yes, we are to discern error, but it is never our responsibility to hand out punishment. 
not your job. It's above your pay grade. We are to treat one another with the benefit of the doubt, assuming the best about them. Is that how you're characterized? By assuming the best about the people around you in this body? Assuming the best, automatically, by default, giving them the benefit of the doubt? Did you know that that's how God views us? He assumes the best and he gives us the benefit of the doubt. He shows mercy. He doesn't give us what we deserve. It's always to seek to lovingly restore, never to embarrass, never to shame, never to elevate ourselves as we lower other people. It is always to lovingly restore. This is what Jude is talking about. It is grace, not law. Secondly, choose to see people as beloved. Do you see the people in this room as simply in your way, that jerk that got the last donut again, who parked in your parking spot? Or do you see the people around you as people that God loves as much as his son, Jesus? This is how the church is to view one another. Beloved, 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 over and over and over again, having a well-reasoned concern for them. Love covers a multitude of sin. This means that people, people are worth it. It's seeing them and esteeming them through the lens of grace, not law. When you look at people, do you look at all of the things, all of the ways that they have fallen short? (laughs) Aren't you glad that God does not look at you that way? I sure am. Thirdly, we are to create safe havens where people are rescued, equipped, and unleashed. This is what we're supposed to do in the church. Be intentional. That's what Jude is saying. Create a safe haven where people are rescued, equipped, and unleashed. And I've heard people say, well, the church is like a hospital. It's to, it's to heal the sick. And I get it. And I am so thankful for any of you that are in the medical profession. Thank you. But I just want to say that's not enough. The business of the church is transformation. It's not just about rescuing people from the flames one day when they die. It is about introducing them to Jesus, which is life transformative. Having the Savior of the world remove their sin and fill them with the measure of His righteousness. That's life transformation. That's what the church is supposed to be about. We are on mission. We're to be about creating safe havens where people are rescued, equipped, and unleashed, where people who are far from God walk through these doors at the White House campus, and within a matter of months or years, they're leading other people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, can you just imagine a church that was doing that? That's what Jude calls us to do. Create safe havens. Now, these principles from the book of Jude are inspired by the Holy Spirit, and they are to the church. All of the church give grace, not law. But now I want to take just a few moments, and I want to very specifically and directly apply this to life in the home as well. Not just in the church, perhaps on a Sunday morning, but your day to day, Tuesday evening, Thursday morning, Saturday night. I want to apply these things directly to the home, and specifically I want to talk about marriage. Now, this is true and applicable to you whether you're married or not, whether you're a student whether you're in elementary school, whether you're divorced, widowed, looking, on the hunt, whatever, this applies because it's dealing with human relationality in view of the gospel, but specifically in the confines of marriage. What does it look like to fight for the faith of my spouse? You ever think about your spouse that way? That you are actually supposed to fight for their faith? Maybe what does it look like to actually fight with my spouse 
Am I allowed to do that? <laughs> yes. What does it look like to fight with my spouse? Let me just say this. Here's the reality. The reality is that you and your spouse are almost always going to be on different pages spiritually. Can I just go ahead and obliterate the myth that you and your spouse are supposed to be in perfect lockstep, finger groove, blissful harmony, walking with a hymn in your mouth to the gates of Zion? It's not going to happen. In fact, normatively, you and your spouse will not be on the same page spiritually. There are seasons when husbands, just, they just can't lead spiritually. They may not even be in a place where they can want to. There are seasons when a wife simply cannot follow spiritually. Maybe she's even in a season where she doesn't even want to. So how in those times, how do we fight for the faith of our spouse? See, the book of Jude says that the answer is not to give them law, to explain to them all the ways that they are falling short. That never works. It is to give grace, not law. Never to retaliate in response, but to default to giving grace and to giving mercy. Not too terribly long ago, I had a couple come and sit down, Danny and Liz. It's not their real names. You don't know them. And by the way, our staff, we feel very strongly about this. We never reveal uh, material from counseling in sermon situations because we want everyone to make sure that they feel comfortable coming to us. This is someone else. Danny and Liz came, and they were on the brink. They were absolutely in crisis. Apparently, Danny had got it into his head that he needed a new bass boat. And Danny decided that he wanted it, needed it, and could justify it. But he knew that Liz would have no part of it. So what did Danny do? Well, Danny left work, and the entire way home, he had the fight with Liz in his head that she had no part of. So by the time he blew through the door, he said something brilliant like this. I'm getting the boat, and there's nothing you can do about it. And she responded about like you might expect. There was brimstone. There was flowing lava. There was carnage. There was massive destruction. And they showed up with me saying, why does this happen? And I said, well, let me, let me get this straight. You already decided what she was going to respond. You assumed the worst about her, right? Right. Let me ask you something, Danny. Can you afford the bass boat? <laughs> no but it floats and you can catch bass from it. I mean, come on. So did you know that she knew that y'all couldn't afford it? Oh, yeah. But you transferred it all to her, right? And he said, yeah. And I said to her, now, now when you heard all that, how did that make you feel? <laughs> she told me that it wasn't fair. All of these things were going on. And so I said, look, here's what I think you should do. Get the boat. Because here's the deal. I can fix, I can work on over a long period of time, I can work on your debt relief. What I can't work on, Liz, is when you get angry and hard-hearted and bitter and resentful, and you begin to view him with contempt, I can't fix that. Get the boat. We'll figure it out. And they both did what you just did. And then I said, now, 
Liz, next time that happens, what if you responded like this? Okay, Danny, really not my call. I trust you. I love you. I don't understand how it's going to work, but I believe that you can. And you're a godly man. And if you believe that this is right, you believe prayerfully that this is what the Lord is leading you to do, then who am I to stand in the way? I, I love you. I trust you. Go for it. But Danny, if she says that to you, do you still buy the boat? No way, man. <laughs> See, grace is the answer, not law. We are to keep ourselves in the love of God. This is how we are to fight for one another's faith. We build ourselves up in most holy faith. How do we do that? Psalm 42, Psalm 43, we preach a sermon to our own souls. Why are you so downcast, O oh my soul? Why are you so downcast, O oh my spouse? We tell each other the truth because the truth is what sets us free. Despite how we might be feeling. And your spouses need to hear truth from you. We, we pray in the Holy Spirit. Do you not know when you were married, something occurred that you didn't feel, you may have no idea about, but Malachi 2.15 says that when you were married, there was a weld that occurred. There was a solder. Malachi 2.15 says that when two people come together in matrimony, that there is a weld that unites those two into one. Do you know what the weld is? It is the Spirit of God himself. He is the weld between you. And when you're thinking about just bailing out, the third member of the Godhead Trinity unites you. Pray together in the Spirit, eagerly expecting the return of Jesus. Oh, honey, I know this is hard. I know this is bad. I'm not real sure what we're going to do, but Jesus is coming. It's going to be okay. And you begin to create safe havens for one another. You give grace, not law. We are to create safe havens for our spouses. The safest place in the world needs to be the person that we love and trust and we've given complete access to. We are the ports in the storm for our spouses. Giving them grace where turbulence is expected produces a sense of safety and rest. So, a little bit more practical, a little bit more tactical. In addition to fighting for one another's faith, I want to discuss fighting with someone of faith. How do we have appropriate conflict with our spouses? So much has to do with, well, let me just tell you how you already know that you're wrong. Here's what we know clinically and in counseling situations. 96% of arguments, if they start harshly, will end in failure, even if what is being said is true. Let me say that again. 96% of arguments between husband and wife if they start harsh, will end in failure, even if what is being said is true. It goes like this. In an argument, in a fight, in conflict, we have the tendency to choose one of two options. We will either issue a complaint. A complaint goes like this. You did X, Y, Z. It made me feel thus. I wish you would ABC. That's a complaint. You did this. It made me feel like this. I wish you would this. That's a complaint. Or it goes down the path of criticism. Criticism does not focus on the event. Criticism focuses on the person. This is how you know if you're engaging in that wonderful tool called criticism. You use words like this. You always. Or you never. Now you're making it about the person. 
And when that sort of thing begins to occur in a conflict, in a marriage relationship, the end is near. I can always tell when a couple is in deeper crisis than even they know. There is this thing that happens called flooding. Flooding is the marriage killer. And I think if Jude had more parchment, he would have written directly against it. Flooding is the marriage killer. Let me explain. This is quick little science and anatomy. In your brain, there is this thing on the front of your brain called the prefrontal cortex. Woohoo! Prefrontal cortex. This is where you make all your decisions. This is the rational, reasonable, logical place of your brain. This is where you decide yellow cheese or white cheese. White cheese. All of those decisions happen in the prefrontal cortex. Imagine this is your brain. Up here is the prefrontal cortex, okay? But tucked nice and cozy right back behind the prefrontal cortex are these two little chunks of brain matter. One of them is called the amygdala. Now, the amygdala is awesome. The amygdala is your hot seat of emotion. When you get really ticked off, it is your amygdala that is going wow, wow. Right next to the amygdala is your hypothalamus. Hypothalamus controls your blood pressure, your breathing, your body temperature, all of those things. And when those two things get charged up together, Katie, bar the door. It's on. Here's what happens. Flooding is, works like this. Here's the prefrontal cortex up in the front of your brain. But when you get hit about four times in the prefrontal cortex, you know what happens? That thing blows off. And now it's the amygdala and the hypothalamus that are firing like this. That's called flooding. And when flooding happens, marriages die. A man's blood pressure elevates, and that blood pressure will not go back down until he feels like he has adequately retaliated. He will sit and stew for 30 minutes, 60 minutes, having that conversation again in his head. His blood pressure will not subside until he feels like he can retaliate. And it happens in about 20 microns. Let me break that down. It's fast. When she starts going, yep, 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 yep. Fourth yep, he's gone. He just, poof, he's gone. And he's flooded. And it literally is like having shell shock. You just shut down and you're, you're about to blow and you feel like you're in imminent danger and you're flooded. It happens a little bit slower for ladies. It takes 30 microns. What am I saying? It happens quicker with men. Men are more quickly overwhelmed with marital stress than women. And when they get overwhelmed, they flood. So we have a call sign at our house. When I start telling my spouse all of the things <laughs> that she's not done right, which is a brilliant maneuver, she'll usually just hold up her hand. I'm like, oh, that's the amygdala. I'm about to get, I'm about to get bloody, aren't I? So when I see this, I know that she's flooded. I walk away and I go, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm an idiot. It says so right on my business card, chief idiot officer. That's me. I'm the CIO. And I just, I'm so sorry. You're, 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 I'm sorry. Flooding is going to happen when one of the four horsemen hit about four times. There's four horsemen. Did you know that? Four horsemen of the marriage apocalypse? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The first one we've already talked about is criticism. When you find yourself saying things like you always or you never, that criticism, it begins to, to nudge on this and you're, you're gone. You, you've stopped the ability to think clearly. The second one is contempt. It's a sense of superiority, and it produces disrespect. Oh, you had someone paid to wash your car again. I guess you're too good to do it like I do. That's contempt. And there's flooding that's going to happen. The third one is defensiveness. It's playing the victim. But what you're really doing is transferring all the responsibility to the other party. And it never works. It always elevates, always escalates. 
the third horseman of the apocalypse. And then finally, the fourth horseman is stonewalling, complete shutting down. You retreat to your cave, either physically or emotionally or relationally, you just shut her down because you just can't deal with anymore. You're flooded. And when flooding happens, marriages fail. Grace stops flooding. Rather than saying all the things, even if they're true, grace stops flooding. Flooding is the marriage killer. Now, maybe you're dating, maybe you're divorced, maybe you're on the hunt, whatever you might be. Maybe you're a student and you're in the fifth grade and you're thinking, I'm going to go find me somebody. Well, just remember, give grace, not law. Flooding is the marriage killer. Men get overwhelmed a whole lot quicker. What if we gave grace? What if we began to assume the best about our spouses and automatically gave them the benefit of the doubt and created a safe haven for them rather than telling them things that they already know? It's not just more information that they need. Adam and Eve's problem in the garden was not a lack of data. They had a heart problem. We have to understand that our spouses often do too. We give grace not law. We show mercy. We snatch some. When our spouses are really struggling, we don't go it alone. We involve our community of other believers, elders, staff, deacons, other volunteers, family members. We want to snatch them because they're worth it. This is personal. told you Danny and Liz was not their real names because it wasn't. It was Eric and Susan. They were our middle names. And it wasn't a bass boat. What it was is none of your business. But here's what really happened. Early in our marriage, I came home and I told her, this is what I'm going to do and there's nothing you can do to stop me because I'm a real wise dude. My wife saved our marriage. She said, that's what you think is right. I trust you. I love you. I know you would never harm me. You go right ahead. And it changed my whole life. She gave grace, not law. She did a redemptive work. You know why? Because she had received grace. Jesus did not give her what she deserved. And that empowered her. It unleashed her. It equipped her to be that for somebody else. What if our homes were characterized by that? Now, she's the hero in the story, but but not really. Jesus is the hero in the story. Because of what he has already done, she was able to do what she did. And I'm completely humbly, transparently saying that if it was not for her, I would not be here. If you are here this morning and you don't know this Jesus and you're still trying to slug it out with law, you're still trying to scale Mount Sinai by going to the list of do's and don'ts, God bless you. We love you. Please turn. You will find no rest. If you're a spouse that is married to someone like that, I challenge you, I charge you prayerfully to give grace not law. If you're here this morning and you don't know this Jesus, we just want to say as declaratively and clear as we possibly can, he is the Christ. He is the son of the living God. He lived a perfect life. The demands of the law is perfection. He did it. The wages of sin is death. He did it. He offers the exchange. He'll take your sin. He'll give you his righteousness. You may not like that. You may not understand it. You may not believe every bit of it. You may not even agree with all of it. It's okay. I ask you this morning, do you believe. The gospel is the good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem man to himself and to one another. Do you believe? For the rest of you, don't forget the gospel. 
the good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem man to himself and to one another. There is no issue in your marriage that is beyond the grace of God. Do you understand this? Took me a long time to get it. There is nothing in your marriage, there is nothing in your marriage that is beyond the grip and the grace and the goodness and the glory of God. Don't forget that. You have been redeemed already. It is finished. Now we get the privilege and the prerogative of living in light of that truth. We have this King Jesus. He is a king who cares. He is a champion that has died. And he is a brother who is proud. You know what he did? He gave grace, not law. Let me pray for you. Father in heaven, thank you for who you are and for what you have done. Thank you for the opportunity to be with these, your people. Holy Spirit, I pray that you will continue to move and work and transform. God, I do pray for anyone in this room who does not know you that you would lead them irresistibly by the saving work of Jesus into a knowledge of your Son. That they would have courage, boldness to speak to someone they know, love, or trust, and they would hear the words of life. For the rest of us, Father, in marriage contexts, would you strengthen homes? Would you build beautiful outposts of your kingdom as this church seeks to deepen and thicken its impact as an embassy? God, we pray for those that are struggling. We know that there must be. We pray that you would well up and swell up with a sense of thanksgiving to the extent that we would give our spouses grace and not law. God, we will be careful to give you all of the glory. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. What a treat to get to be here with you. Let me ask you to do me a favor. Would you please stand? I would love to give a word of benediction from the book of Jude. And then we're going to sing the doxology, if that's okay. Yeah. This is from the end of the book of Jude. It may be my favoritest benedictionist ever. This is how Jude wraps it up. Now to him who is able, watch this, to keep you. You are kept. Keep yourselves. And he is able to keep you. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of, the, of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.